We're going to be going through Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Some of you might be uh, wondering, why are we doing Easter during Christmas? And do I have my holidays mixed up or something? Yes, I do. But I'll I'll talk a little bit more about that um, next week as to why we need to talk about Easter in order to get to Christmas. So I invite you to come out to that. And to that one, I'm only going to be speaking for like two minutes because we have to translate it into the Korean language as well as into Mandarin Chinese. And each pastor is sharing 10 minutes, so each of us really only has two minutes. So if you're to tolerate any kind of long preaching or things, I know this is a Baptist church, but we're not Baptist, but we tend to speak long anyway. But anyway, two minutes, that's it. But we're currently in a Gospel of Luke series, and what we do here at this church is we just go chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And I wish I could tell you that I planned this all out, that I planned for the crucifixion to be right before Christmas so that, you know, strategizing about all that, but I can't take credit for any of it. And I think God just sometimes works in these mysterious ways and Maybe this is just one of them. So let's just jump right into it. Verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Now, something that's really kind of interesting is Luke wrote, there they crucified him. That's it. I mean, isn't that strange to you? Because throughout the Gospels, Throughout the Bible, there's this build-up to this point of the crucifixion, and this is all Luke has to say about the crucifixion. That's it. Why? Why is there so little detail about this? Because sometimes people like to elaborate on this crucifixion, the passion of Jesus, but this is it. This is the reason why. God doesn't want us to stop at the physical suffering of Jesus. It's easy for us to get fixated on this point, thinking that, you know, we understand the gospel if we just kind of get the picture of his physical pain and his physical suffering, and and then that's it. That is not true. All of the gospel writers don't provide any detail to us because there's something deeper that they want to get across, more so than the suffering of Jesus. Yet, we get so fixated on the physical suffering of Jesus. 
Even though the point isn't that Jesus is our sufferer, Jesus is our Savior. That is the point. The point isn't that he suffered for you. The point is, is, is that he saved you. And so this is what the writers and the authors of the Gospels want to get across to us. Don't stop at the passion of the Christ. So the purpose of the Gospel isn't to give us the gruesome details of his suffering, but to give us what his suffering accomplished. Because they're not concerned with giving us the passion of the Christ. They are consumed with giving us the mission of Christ. And no one in the Bible presents the passion to us. I mean, look through the Bible. Who does that? Pastors, churches, movie directors, artists. All those people, they go off on the passion. But the Bible does not. Luke just writes, there they crucified him. That's it. What is the focus? The focus of the Gospels, the focus of the Bible is this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He didn't suffer for suffering's sake. He suffered for our sake. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The purpose of the cross was not suffering. The purpose of the cross was salvation, your salvation. Luke was a physician, right? He's a doctor. And if anyone could write about the physical sufferings of Jesus, he could. He could extrapolate all that knowledge of medical knowledge to tell us all the things he suffered through. And so can I. Because I've heard those sermons over and over. But we're not going to do that here. Because Luke didn't do that. Luke did not elaborate on the sufferings of Jesus. Just like the other writers of the Bible did not because the point wasn't to feel sorry for Jesus. The point wasn't to feel personal conviction. The point was to change. To transform. It's not about Jesus being the sufferer. It's about Him being the Savior. Verse 34, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isn't this essentially a prayer? This is Jesus' prayer. Jesus is communicating with God to forgive them. Those who nailed Jesus to the cross. Those who put Him on the stand without any charges and they falsely accused Him and sentenced Him to death. So this gets me thinking. The guys that nailed Jesus to the cross, they've probably heard every curse thrown at them. They've probably heard every threat all the swearing, all the insults to their moms, all those kind of stuff that those guys got from hanging all those criminals and traitors. And the... But to hear forgiveness? And that's because Jesus did exactly as He taught in Luke chapter 6, verses 27-28. through 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Forgiveness of our sins. That's essentially the gospel. Luke chapter 1, verses 76 through 77, it's from the very beginning, right? 
Zechariah said this, and you, child, so baby Jesus, so this is a Christmas message. I'm, I'm bringing it in here. Will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. It's from Luke 1. The forgiveness of sins is Jesus' mission and why he died for us. That is why. The theme of forgiveness is throughout the Bible. But just sticking with Luke as the author of the Gospel of Luke and the, and the book of Acts, just to keep it concise, let's just stick with Luke and Acts. So let's turn to Acts chapter 5. It's right after John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Acts chapter 5. Here Peter and his apostles are questioned by the council, and then the high priest questioned them, picking up at verse 28. The high priest said, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, yet... Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as Savior and to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now we can cross-reference all day about forgiveness, but let's just do one more. This is in Acts chapter 10. And this is Peter speaking again. We're picking up in verse 39. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. These are eyewitnesses. These are contemporaries. These are, this isn't written later. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name forgiveness is in the heart of god so is it all that surprising that jesus prayed for forgiveness for those who killed him is this more than just head knowledge for you is this more than just feeling personally convicted for you when this becomes more than information, when this becomes more than feelings, hopefully it results in change. Now, you know you are free, and you become personally aware of your freedom from sin. That type of change. Now, how do you really know? Well, it's similar to any other relationship. You can know about someone, and you can know of someone, but are you in relationship with them? Right? It's not a matter of whether you want to be with someone or you like to be with someone, but are you with them? It's like a crush that you may have, right? right? You, you know all about this crush because uh, you read about him and people and uh, whatever. What are those other things? You inquire, whatever. I don't, know. I don't know those things. You've Googled him. And so you've read all about him. and the, Oh, the OMG website. That's one of those things. And, and you looked him up on Facebook. And, and so you know everything about him. You know everything about him. But you don't know him. You just know about him. You know about information about him, but you don't have a relationship with him. And that could be some Christians. You know all about God. 
But you don't know God. You don't know Him. You're not in relationship with Him. So how do you know you know God? How do you know you're in relationship with God? Well, do you talk with Him? How's your prayer life? Or is your prayer life non-existent? Then, and if it is, then you probably don't have a very good relationship with Him because there's no communication. And bad communication equals bad relationships. And some of your marriages experience that, some of your friendships. Or maybe you think you have a great prayer life, and the question to ask yourself is, do you really? Because if you do, then how does your life line up with the Bible? Does it compromise with sin? Because if you're talking with him, that's not a comfortable place to be. He's going to tell you that. And, because, and if you are in this compromise, maybe, maybe your prayer life is not as good as you think, or maybe you're just talking to yourself, and you're not really talking to God. Because what you know about God is through the Bible, and it needs to be consistent with your relationship with Him. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6-10. through 10. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Back to verse 34, Luke chapter 23. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Really? These guys don't know what they're doing? I mean, they, they know. right? They, they knew that their charges were bogus against Jesus. They knew that justice was not being served. They strong-armed Pilate into sentencing Jesus to capital punishment. Those Romans knew that they were scourging Jesus. They knew that they were hanging Jesus. So what did Jesus mean that these guys weren't fully aware of what they were doing? Yeah, that's what He means. They're not fully aware. They know that they're doing those physical actions. They know they're saying those things. But they are not fully aware as far as their actions were concerned as to the spiritual ramifications of what they were doing. They didn't know that much. They thought they were just killing another guy. They had no idea that they were putting God incarnate on the cross. And that's why Peter and the apostles had to help them understand that after the resurrection. You look back in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3. When Peter and John healed the guy at the beautiful gate, and the people were wondering, and they were staring at him, and then Peter said, verse 13, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and the Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Now let's just skip to verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers. You notice what Peter said there? For they know not what they do. Peter is addressing this. I know that you acted in ignorance and you and did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is just an incredible prayer by Jesus. Let's finish verse 34 here. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Isn't this just sad? Jesus was already poor. I mean, he had little to start with, and they took that. They took what he was wearing. And what the Romans did was they were looking to do more than just take one's life. What they attempted to also do to Jesus is to rob him of his honor, to rob him of his dignity, to place him naked on the cross. They wanted to take away his influence by saying like, hey, look, that's your leader. Anybody following him, that's him. Look. And this is a culture where it's very modest. And you don't expose yourself like that. And so they did that to him. And and then they divided his garments right in front of him and in front of everyone else there. Now, typical for this time, there were were, uh, several pieces of clothing. There was a a turban. There was this inner tunic, like an undergarment. There was a belt, uh, like a sash or or something to tie around. And then you wore sandals. And then you had an outer robe. So typically, you had five pieces of clothing. Typically, there would be four Roman soldiers to accompany a prisoner to their crucifixion. And so when they entered the site of the execution, then they'd strip them down from what they were wearing, and then they'd cast lots. They'd gamble. They'd gamble to see who would get what item. And so in this case, there was probably an extra item because typically someone wore five pieces of clothing. Typically, there were four soldiers. So they're casting lots to figure out which one we get. And they didn't want to rip one of those items. You read this in the Gospel of John. So they were casting lots for probably the most expensive item instead of tearing that up. Verse 35, And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Now this was a typical way to do a a public announcement as to the charge for a, a person's death. They would have this inscription. But with Jesus, there was no charge. You remember that. In front of Pilate, he was innocent. In front of Herod, he was innocent. So there is no charge. So this is the king of the Jews. This is what Pilate comes up with. Now why was this the inscription? We have to look back to the Gospel of John in chapter 19, verses 21-22. through The chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Pilate wrote this as it was. He didn't want to placate to them anymore. He has reached his wit's end with these guys. He was strong armed to convict an innocent man to death, and now these guys are saying, like, Oh, can you change the verbiage a little bit? We don't want you to write the king of the Jews. We we want you to write that he said that he was the king of the Jews, but not us. He was just like, are you kidding me? What? He was so fed up. And so now he's like, that's it. I'm going to get my point across now. King of the Jews. What does that tell them? You're not in control. 
I am. I placated to you for a little bit to, to sentence Jesus to death. That's it. Now it's my turn. You are subject to Rome. I put whatever I want. And I'm putting he's the king of the Jews to show you that whoever you put as a leader for the Jews, that's going to happen to him too. I'm in control. And so, he put the Jews in their place. That's it. No more. We've done enough playing king of the Jews. And whatever happens in my jurisdiction, that's going to happen to your leader. That's what's going to happen to him. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Now let's look back to verses 35 through 39 really quickly. I just want to point out some things. I want to pull out the verbs there. And I also want to point out this phrase that keeps on recurring. Verse 35, the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And now verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Pick up that phrase, you pick up all those verbs, watching, scoffed, mocked, rail, and then you you pick up that phrase of save yourself. Save yourself. Now, the logic behind them saying that is, if Jesus can't save himself, how can you say you're going to save others? You can't save yourself, how can you say you're a savior? It's ridiculous. And so, they didn't understand that It was precisely because Jesus doesn't save Himself that you and I can come to God through Him. They didn't understand that. If Jesus doesn't die for us, we are trapped in our sin with no way out. If He saves Himself, you and I are stuck in our sin. It is precisely because He took our place that we can be reconciled to God, that we can be brought to God. And this is what's going on today. People questioning God because it's difficult for them to see the logic of why things are the way they are today. Some God, He had to die? I mean, if He's God, why does He have to die? And this may be especially Difficult for people who claim to be spiritual, but not religious, spiritual, because in their spiritual arrogance, they can't fathom why Jesus had to die on the cross. They can't see their separation from God, their brokenness, the darkness of the world and of humanity, all of that because we've been alienated from God through our sin. And so the cross, sin, that's just... uh, bunch of baloney. That's just mythology. That's folklore. That's fiction. That's, That's made up stuff. This is exactly why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So you think that the belief against the cross and the sin is a new thing just for today? That people believe that, oh, come on, please. That's, oh, jeez, forget that. That's, that's nothing. That's stupid. That's made up. 
That's why Paul wrote this verse a couple thousand years ago. I mean, that's, that's been going on forever. And some of you are really wondering how you ended up at this church this week before Christmas listening to Jesus on the cross. I thought I was going to listen to kids singing and baby Jesus stories and jingle bells. And, and, you, and you probably thought you were going to hear this cute baby Jesus story this morning. Sorry. Doesn't happen here. I mean, seriously, look at me. Do you think I can give you a cute baby Jesus? Man, I can't do that. I, I don't have the capacity. With my daughters, yes, I can do that. I can be dad and we talk about bears and pigs or whatever. I can do the. But if this news of the cross is foolishness to you, if this is folly, this is the reason why you are perishing. That's why. Paul wrote that. I'm not saying that. The Bible says that. That is why it's foolishness to you. That is why it's folly to you. And you know what? If this is good news to you, it's because you're being saved. Ha! Ah! Thank you! Right? And some people are trying to manipulate God like those cynical onlookers at the cross and, and religious rulers and the soldiers and the criminal next to Jesus. If you're God, save yourself. Prove it. Right? Prove it. And it's like some of us today. If you're God, prove it. Do this for me. Do that for me. Prove it. Now, if God answers you, really, who's really God? If He answers you like that, aren't you God? Because He's doing what you're saying. He doesn't answer to you and me. He's God. You can't manipulate Him. Verse 40, But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. One of the criminals saw his sin, the other one did not. Both of them heard the same prayer. Both of them heard the same message. Both of them were in the presence of Jesus. But there's a different outcome for each of them because each of them responds differently to Jesus. It is the same thing today. People will come in here and what happens to them individually is completely different spiritually when they leave the door. One may leave changed while another stays the same. It's the same worship service. It's the same sermon. But one leaves unchanged and the other one leaves believing Jesus. This is the only deathbed conversion in the entire Bible. You know that? I've had several opportunities or deathbed conversions. I've just been blessed by Jesus to be allowed to have these. My grandmother, I've shared this before, in China, she was dying. She was on her deathbed. And so I was called and my father, so we flew there right away. And I just kept praying, Jesus, just keep her alive long enough and alert long enough so that I can share the gospel with her one more time. Just one more time. So we got there. She was still alive. I shared what she couldn't talk. The only way she could communicate was with blinking. So I said, Grandma, one blink is yes, two blinks is no. Can you understand me? One blink. Shared the gospel with her, and I asked if she would accept Jesus as her Lord and Savior. One blink. And I said, would you pray this prayer with me? One blink. I have faith that my grandmother is with me. 
There have been other opportunities where I've shared the gospel message with someone on their deathbed. My grandfather-in-law, I went to his bedside every day for months while he was in hospice care. Every day. I worked by his side, taking phone calls, working on my sermons. I shared with him the gospel several times. All the while, he said, I don't need that stuff. I don't need that stuff. I don't need it. I am praying that somewhere along the line, he had enough information and it happened. I just don't know, though. He didn't confess that publicly. But I am hoping and praying and I'm faithful that he received that. My father-in-law. He once told my wife to never share Jesus with him. I honored him. I honored him with that. Until the Tuesday before he died. Because the Tuesday before he died, I just felt the Holy Spirit, you're going to do it now. And I said, okay. I don't care if he gets mad at me or anything. Jesus, the Holy Spirit trumps everybody else. doesn't matter. And I shared the gospel with him. He accepted Jesus. God works in mysterious ways. You hear the same message, but you don't come out the same. It's the same gospel. Some leave with faith in Jesus. Others leave unchanged. I have no idea what's going on. And it's just like these guys next to Jesus. One dies in faith, and the other dies unchanged. And you notice that the man who had faith in Jesus, he was not religious. Right? He, he, he didn't have to prove himself. He didn't have this list of things that he had to do before he was a Christian. And say, oh, i got to stop smoking, and i got to stop drinking, and i got to stop cussing, and i got to stop being angry and, and beating up my dog, and, and all this other stuff. He didn't, it's nothing like that. He had faith. And the other guy saw the cross as evidence that Jesus was a loser. You're dying here with me. And the other guy sees Jesus as the Messiah because you are innocent. You're an innocent man dying here. There's no other way to describe this. You have to be Messiah. Because in verse 4, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And this is one of the issues people have with Christianity. That we have to confess that we're sinners. Oh. Please, I am good. I'm so good. Why? Because we like to dictate our own morality. And we don't like to be punished for things that we don't believe are immoral or unethical or illegal or or wrong or sinful. So we have a lot of people who claim to be spiritual. But, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm, I'm not religious. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, though. Now, why would I say this stuff? I say this stuff because I hear it all the time. I'm so tired of it. Because if you claim this, you actually are establishing a religious framework to say that you're truly religious because your spirituality is your religion. Isn't it? I mean, that's a conflict. Your religious framework is that you are God. That's your religion. That you're God. And you believe that you are right. You are your own God. That's the initial sin. Adam and Eve, what was the origin of that sin? 
They believed that they knew better. I'll believe that. They believed they knew better. And you look at Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I mean, isn't that the description of many in our culture? They trust in themselves that they are righteous and they treat everyone else with contempt. Everyone else is wrong. I am right. Isn't that a religion in itself? I'm the God. And yes, Christians are guilty of the same exact thing. We are. You know, we think we're holier than thou. We got all this stuff. And and Christians who trust in themselves and treat others with contempt. Right? Oh, you're terrible. Oh, I can't believe you do that. I can't believe you believe that. I can't believe all this. And religion believes that there is a cause and an effect. That's what religion believes. Right? I do good things, therefore I earn good things. I earn good things from God. I earn things, whatever the higher power is, or I earn things for myself, or whatever. There's a cause and an effect. Whatever that God may be. So, higher power, you, money, knowledge, whatever. I do good things. I deserve good things. So a religious person, they like to share what they've done. That's what a religious person likes to do. I volunteer here. I donate here. I support this organization. I've raised really good kids. I've provided for my family. I'm a really good person. I've worked really hard my whole life. I, I don't steal. I, I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't, I, I'm just a good person. And so you think that God is pleased with you because you believe that everything you think is of importance is mutually uh, important and regarded as important as such by God. So now you've earned your righteousness. You deserve whatever is good and whatever happens after death. And that is religion. That's religion. That's the same thing the prodigal son's older brother was guilty of, wasn't it? His younger brother came back, dad threw a big old party for him, and picking up in Luke chapter 15, verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. This is the older brother. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. The older brother wanted a dad who could be manipulated the same way people want a God who can be manipulated by whatever religion they are conjuring up. It's the same thing. Anything is acceptable. Just don't tell me that I'm wrong. And forget about a God who is gracious and and coming out to us and entreating us and inviting us and looking to forgive sinners because I want to believe what I want to believe and I want to do what I want to do. But do realize this. That is your religion. Please don't say you're not religious. You are extremely religious. Jesus wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want a religion with you. But we need to deal with our sin. We have to personally take up this sin issue with God. One guy makes demands of Jesus, save yourself, save me, For what he thinks he deserves. And the other guy asks Jesus for what he knows he does not deserve. That's grace. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
This is the difference between believing faith and just religious wishfulness. Right? Religious wishfulness makes demands of what one thinks they deserve and what they think that they've earned. Those who have a believing faith ask Jesus for things we don't think that we deserve. But we faithfully believe that He will offer that to us. His grace. Verse 43, And He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with Me in paradise. This is Jesus' promise. right? Now what does paradise mean? Well, this is in reference to the Persian king and how he honored individuals by inviting them to be among the king's grand enclosure. This is paradise. Right? So, the king had this grand garden where there would be plenty of shade and water and recreation and food and nature for the king and his guests to enjoy and for them to have pleasure in. So, for example, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon which are one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, King Nebuchadnezzar built these gardens and, and, and it's not that just anyone can enter. Right? You only had access to the garden if you were given that honor and that honor would also allow you access to the king while he was in the garden. This is the picture that Jesus is drawing. Because take yourself back to a garden. The Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, picture yourself, God as king. They were given the honor to be there. Provided everything. Everything. But once sin entered into the world, there was a separation. There was no more access to God. There was no more access to paradise. There was no more access to the presence of God. That's why Jesus came, 1 Peter 3.18, to bring you unto God. That's why He came. To bring us back to God. For us to have relationship with Him again. And this isn't something that we have to wait for at death. Jesus said, Today you will be with Me in paradise. Back in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me because He has anointed Me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent Me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now you skip to verse 21, and He began to say to them, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today. The kingdom is here today. Of course, there's this not yet aspect to it, but it's also here. And so you remember the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus hung out with Zacchaeus at his house, and and he repented, he restored, he paid restitution to those he defrauded. And Jesus said to him in Luke chapter 19, verse 9, Today, salvation has come to this house. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Will you? Don't wait. Don't wait anymore. Jesus is here for you today. He's extending that to you today. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is knocking on the door to your life right now. Will you open it up to him? Will you open your heart to Him? Because you're not here by accident. I did not plan this message. 
We've been in the book of Luke for over three years. I did not plan this message for you to be here at this time for me to say these things. You're not here by accident. Jesus is working in your life right now, today. Today, salvation has come to this house. But are you going to open the door? God wants to be with us. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Today you will be with me in paradise. And that's only possible because Jesus died in our place. We were the sinful ones. We were the ones with guilt. Yet he, the sinless one, the guiltless one, took our place. And in him paying my debt of sin, I receive his righteousness and a relationship with God. He ushers me into God. He suffered and died so that I may live. He had to for that relationship to happen. He hung there naked and thirsty so that I can be clothed in royal clothing and experience fullness in paradise. All of that is available to you as well. You just need to believe that Jesus did that for you. Do you believe? Not as a religious person but as a self-acknowledged sinner desiring a relationship with God. I mean, whatever your excuses are, it's not too late. Whatever excuses you may have, it's not too late. The guy hanging next to Jesus was at the last minutes of his life. I encourage you not to wait that long. Really, I, I can only be at one place at one time. I mean, if the Lord calls me to and you're dying, I'm, I'm going I'm to do it. But you've been given the grace to receive it while you are here today. Don't wait because you don't know when you're going to die. Sometimes it's beyond us. Car accident? Heart attack? You don't know. Don't wait. And I hope and pray that all will leave here changed, not convicted, changed. What is the good of the conviction if you aren't changed? That you leave changed. Not that you leave here with more knowledge. Actually, more knowledge gets you in trouble. Because now you are accountable to that. Do you know that? When you're at the judgment and you're like, um, yeah. The excuse if you've never heard this before is not going to work. You've heard it. Sorry. But it wouldn't surprise me if there will be those of you who go out with more knowledge, even with conviction, but no change. That's a travesty to me. I have not done my job. I am not here to convict you. I'm not here to give you more knowledge I'm here to be a voice, a a microphone to help usher change. But even Jesus himself, one rejected him and one accepted him. So who am I? God himself, and that happened.
Some people are just that hardened. I hope that's not you. I hope and pray that you change from just this religious, wishful thinking to believing trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and that you have a relationship with God. Pray. Father, personally, I have to confess that I have no desire to preach such a message during the holidays. There's something in me, in my flesh, that desires to have this uplifting, chipper, uh, happy, joyful time the week before Christmas and and to say those things. But, But Lord, how gracious you are to give that message to us. Because... What good is it if we've gained the whole world and lost our soul? So God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. And I pray, God, that your grace and your mercy would just flow throughout our body. That people's hearts and minds and spirits and souls are softened to receive your grace to be with them in paradise today. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you. If you desire to give your life to Jesus this morning, I ask that you would pray this prayer with me. Not that you're just saying words and not that you're just believing in your heart that you have these feelings, but that you believe in faith. That You have the faith that this is happening to you right now, that you are being ushered into relationship with God because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross for you, taking your place for your sins. Pray this. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I know I'm a sinner. Thank you for taking my place. Thank you for ushering me into a relationship with God. I pray that you would change me. That with the knowledge and with the conviction, I would also receive change. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen.